The American Melody Hour, usually presented at this time by the makers of Bayer's Aspirin, will not be broadcast tonight due to the special program which follows immediately. From the Grand Ballroom of the Hotel Waldorf Astoria in New York City, Columbia brings you the opening of the fourth and final session of the 16th Annual New York Herald Tribune Forum, whose theme this year is Modern Man, Slave or Sovereign. The speakers are Secretary of State George C. Marshall, head of the United States delegation to the General Assembly of the United Nations, who will speak on the reconstruction of Europe, and Hector McNeil, British Minister of State and head of the British delegation to the General Assembly of the UN, whose topic is Britain's role. The speakers will be introduced by Mrs. Ogden Reed, president of the New York Herald Tribune. Mrs. Reed. This country generally... By October of 1947, nearly 11 million babies had been born in the U.S. since the end of World War II. Young parents were staying home with their children. Movie attendance bombed. The 1947-48 season had the largest radio audience in history. Homes with radios jumped 6%, car radios 29%. NBC, CBS, ABC and the Mutual Broadcasting System added nearly 150 affiliates. 97% of the nation's AM stations were now linked to one of the big four. And network revenue topped $200 million. World War II had created fundamental changes in society. While men of all races and creeds were overseas spilling the same colored blood, women mobilized and took charge of the workforce. When veterans were discharged, they returned home with different ideals and what we now call PTSD. As new cars, roads and homes brought young families to the suburbs, racial discrimination came to the forefront in the face of the GI Bill, where a much higher percentage of white Americans were having their applications accepted. Our beloved Secretary of State, George C. Marshall. <laughs> Ms. Reed, ladies and gentlemen. The discussion this evening, as you well know, is directed to the problem of the reconstruction of Europe. On October 29th, the National Civil Rights Committee delivered a report to the White House. The document made 35 specific recommendations, including asking the president to create a permanent federal commission on civil rights. President Truman said he'd study the report with great care and recommended that all citizens do the same thing. I believe is no longer a matter of argument. Americans were organizing. In the year after VJ Day, more than five million struck for better wages and benefits. This hurt key sectors of the economy and stifled production. Consumer goods in high demand were slow to appear on shelves and in showrooms, frustrating Americans who desperately wanted to purchase items forsaken during the war. It caused the largest inflation rise in the country's modern history and the Taft-Hartley Act, limiting the power of labor unions. President Truman was seemingly at odds with Congress over every domestic policy, and his approval rating sank to 32 percent. Re-election the following year seemed unlikely. We cannot stand indifferent to the fate of the nations who are having great difficulty in recovering from the consequences of the war. 
and are looking to us for assistance. These are people who hold the same views of the international conduct as we do. If we are to be successful in our quest for peace in a decent world, we will be constantly in need of their strong cooperation. The U.S. war debt, top $240 billion. Emerging as one of the world's leaders, America was expected to have the largest hand in rebuilding Europe. News outlets reported that, to create European stability, Americans should resume sacrifices they made during the war. Not agreeing to do so, could result in political enemies taking over the continent. Solely with our own internal affairs. Despite our heavy commitments in Germany, Austria, and Italy, while Europe suffered a complete political and economic demoralization, or we must take action to assist Europe in avoiding a disastrous disintegration with tragic consequences for the world. Therefore, the suggestion was made that October, that the as the major networks were enjoying the largest ratings in radio history, one network, the Mutual Broadcasting System, was still struggling to grab audiences. Airing out of WOR in New York, The Shadow was the network's most listened to program. While it pulled a rating of 13, strong for a show airing on Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern, it was nowhere near radio's top 50. Mutual's top stations, WOR in New York, WGN in Chicago, and Don Lee's KHJ in Los Angeles, all boasted powerful signals and had equal shares in the network. And while Mutual reached 400 affiliates in 1947 and would add another 100 over the next year, many of these were small stations in rural areas. This limited their advertiser appeal. Mutual was run as a cooperative rather than a corporation. As families left cities and farms for the suburbs, the network's shared programming structure left it at a distinct disadvantage against NBC, CBS, and ABC. Those three networks would use their soaring revenue to move into TV. Although some mutual affiliates developed television programming, the full network was never able to launch into the new medium. That's not to say MBS didn't have quality programming, just the opposite. And with Halloween around the corner, tonight, we'll delve into mutual's horror, mystery, and suspense shows of the late 1940s. And the results of their investigations are becoming available. I think it is important that you Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 132. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we go back to the late 1940s and say Happy Halloween with Mutual Broadcasting. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Halloween by Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians. It's a perfect song to get us into the season's spirit. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wall breakers. And Burning Gotham, 
the new audio fiction soap opera set in 1835 New York City, is very much on its way. Go to BurningGotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at Patreon.com slash TheWallBreakers. I don't know if I understand it. I started back in the days when Guglielmo Marconi started, I think. <laughs> now, I've been in it a long time. This is, how many years, maybe? Over 50 years. And it goes back to the days when I first started, and everybody says, how did you ever get into radio? How did you ever get into radio? I forgot. <laughs> I got in, and I guess I was going to school at the time, and if, if any of you know New York City, there is a bedroom called Brooklyn, where we lived. And there is an additional place called Coney Island. And a friend of mine, were walking on the boardwalk, a friend of myself, walking on the boardwalk in Coney Island, when we got to uh, the Half Moon Hotel, and on the floor, on, the, on the, uh, the basement floor, there were a couple of stores. And one of them had the letters WCGU. And I said to this friend of mine, what do you suppose that is? He said, I think it's a radio station. I said, oh? And at that point, a guy came running out and said, can anybody here do anything? And this fellow pointed to me and he says, he plays piano. And he grabbed me, threw me into this studio, which looked like a house of ill repute. It had velvet drapes all around, a solitary piano, and there was a microphone on a stand, and this was known as a carbon mic, a big round mic, and there was, the actual mic itself was suspended on rubber bands. And the man came up to the mic, tapped it, to get the carbons all settled, and said, ladies and gentlemen, we now present that distinguished concert pianist, Mr. Paul Hart. And I looked around and said, who the hell is he talking about? You know. <laughs> he said, what are you going to play? I said, well, I'm going to play Dizzy Fingers, and uh, It Had to Be You, and a few other jazzy things. And he said, wait a minute, you've got to play something classical. I said, oh, I'll play the Minute Waltz by Chopin, a little Bach fugue, and a Beethoven sonata. And when he got finished, he said, you want a job? I said, doing what? He said, playing piano. I said, well, I'm... I go to school, you know, I go to college and I, I just can't take time off. He said, well, we don't start here till about four o'clock. If you come in here and play, say, at 3.30, 4 o'clock on, he said, we'll give you $25 a week. Well, in 1929 or 28, with 29, I guess, it was just about during the Depression, $25 a week was a fortune. I grabbed it and I played piano and had a great time. And eventually I had to make a decision as to whether I wanted to play piano, become an illustrator because I had studied art at the L'Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris, or uh, possibly stay in radio. The man you just heard is radio announcer Andre Baruch. He got his radio start in Coney Island in the 1920s. In the fall of 1947, Coney Island still had one large amusement park, Steeplechase. But Edward Tillyou, son of George C. Tillyou, who built Steeplechase Park, had passed away in June of 1944. Two months later, on August 12, 1944, a fire gutted nearly half of the other large park, called Luna. Nearly a dozen main attractions were destroyed. Unfortunately, building materials were strictly rationed because of World War II. Luna's owners charged a dime to view the ruins. The park, would never fully reopen. 
Coney Island, the world's greatest fun frolic, with its beach miles long, all peppered with people. The place where merriment is king. Two years later, in 1946, Luna Park's land was sold for $275,000. With New York City Parks Commissioner Robert Moses' urging, the new owners announced their intentions to build a housing project on the property. On October 5th, records dismantling the park touched off a four-alarm fire. It burned for 10 hours. By the time the embers went out, only the park's administration building, ballroom, and pool remained. Simultaneously, as Americans began to flood the suburbs, Robert Moses saw an opening. He hated Coney Island's working-class entertainment. Moses was hard at work getting the amusement land rezoned. His plan was to wipe out any traces of Coney's past. During the day, the area was still a hotbed for beachgoers, foodies, and amusement patrons. But after dark, Coney, now filled with vacant land, transformed into a seedy underworld. What's the story concerning the ambulance? Oh, after about two years of trying to really break into big-time radio, I suddenly got myself two jobs in one day. And the times overlapped, and it never occurred to me to give one of them up. You know, the gods didn't want me to have this bounty. They wouldn't have offered it to me. So I accepted it, and then I realized the problem afterwards. I had about seven minutes to get across town in New York from Madison Avenue CBS to WHN, which was at 46th Street and Broadway. I timed myself running, and it didn't make it. So I decided I'd hire an ambulance. I got an ambulance number from the yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked them how much they'd charge, and they said, $12 if you're an invalid, $15 if you're not. So why the difference? Said, because it's against the law to carry you if you're not an invalid. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a wild ride. The ambulance was waiting for me, and I tipped the elevator man on both buildings, you know, in advance. Uh, I ran out of the studio. When I finished, it was Merton Marge, the CBS show. The elevator wasn't there, and I nearly broke my thumb pressing the down button. Every second was precious. You Certainly. Know. So there are the ambulance guys waiting for me. And he says, look, now, I can take a chance of going across town. It's a much shorter distance. But I might get caught in traffic even with my siren, or I can go up Madison Avenue and across 57th Street where it's wide, and I come down that way. It'll take a little longer. I mean, it'll, it'll be shorter, even though it seems lo it'll be a longer route. So I said, "All right, go that way." And he started the uh, siren screaming, and and then the siren broke down, <laughs> turned into around 7th Avenue, 57th Street. And he said, "I can get out and fix it, but it'll take about a minute." And he said, and I said "Go ahead, go on right through," you know. <laughs> so he went right through and. The, Cars were jamming on their brakes, you know, to avoid collisions. I got there and I ran out of the ambulance, which was a strange sight for the passers-by <laughs> there. And I would think yeah. I was running from an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> the elevator was waiting for me there, and I uh, got in and uh, took me up. And I just had time to take one gulp of breath and speak. But it taught me a lesson never to try anything like that again. <laughs> Actually, I lost money on the deal after paying for a standing. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a challenge. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Coney Island Nocturne. Yes, we have the story for you. 
Come right over. Crime Club debuted over the mutual broadcasting system at 8 p.m. on December 2, 1946. Each episode adapted one of the stories in the Crime Club magazine. New York stage and radio actor Barry Thompson played the librarian. This episode, Coney Island Nocturne, was broadcast from WOR in New York and heard Thursday, July 10, 1947 at 10 p.m. It featured the just-heard Joseph Julian. Ah, you're here. Good. Take the easy chair by the window. Comfortable? The manuscript is on this shelf. Here it is, Coney Island Nocturne. The very absorbing story of fingers that were nailed by death. Let's look at it under the reading lamp. When Mike Donahue brought Helen O'Malley to Coney Island for an evening of fun, he had only the best intentions. Naturally, he was an officer of the law, a detective, and she was his fiancée. But three hours later, they stood in the middle of a crowded, noisy carnival street. They were faced with a crisis of catastrophic proportions. Mike, I'm afraid I'll never understand you. How many times have I told you never to keep your wallet in your hip pocket? Yeah. If you were just another palooka who didn't know any better, then, well, all right. But you're a member of the pickpocket squad. You're supposed to know. Yeah. Haven't you got anything to say? How much money have you got on you? Enough to get us home. Helen, you're not going to tell the boys at the station house. No, dear. I still expect to marry you someday. I want congratulations, not sympathy. Yeah, well... Hey, Mike. Uh, hmm? Who is that? Look over there, honey, and you'll see a character. Hiya, Mike. I never thought I'd be glad to see you. Benny Gould. You recognize me, don't you? Put me over, pal. I've done a 60-day stretch in a workhouse, and I ain't a bit tired. <laughs> what are you doing down here, Benny? You thought your territory was Times Square. I got a job. I'm going straight, Mike. You don't say. Yep. Got fed up looking through bars. So now I'm a barker for a show up the street. Hey, who's the uh, tomato? Helen O'Malley, chipmunk. Do you consider me fruit or vegetable? Huh? Oh, <laughs> It's a riot, Mike. Is it uh, permanent? Put your hands behind your head, Benny. What? I'm going to frisk you. Now, do you want to put him up, or do I have to coax you? I put him up. You can cut nothing on me. I'm on a level now, Mike. You're an old-time pickpocket, Benny. You know where you cops make a label stick. Once a crook, always a crook. Mike, he wouldn't have your wallet. Maybe not, Helen. But this dip can pick the whiskers off a sleeping cat and get away with it. Okay, Benny. Thanks. Come on, Helen. Hey, wait a minute. Was she kidding about your wallet? You're blocking traffic. Come on, you don't have to be ashamed to tell me about it. I used to be in the business. Uh, you wouldn't be giving it to us now, would you? Look, I know every dip on the island. Give me a chance, maybe I'll get your wallet back for you. Why, chipmunk? Because I'm a good citizen, that's why. All right, Benny, let's go. Hey, what is this, a pinch? You were going to take me to the wallet, weren't you? Well, i got to find it first, Mike. Suppose we do that together, huh? Uh-uh. I ain't putting the finger on nobody. If you want your property, then you'll wait till I nab the guy that's got it, and then I'll bring it to you. Don't argue, Mike. Be practical. That's what I say, sister. I'm doing him a favor. But how is it done, Chipmunk? Coney Island's a big place. Well, I contact a few of the dips, and they spread the word around, that's all. Okay, Benny. It's going to take time, Mike. Uh, meet me at the beach at the end of the boardwalk in a couple hours, 11 o'clock. And don't follow me. We won't. Mike wants his wallet, and I want Mike to be happy. We'll meet you on the beach at 11 o'clock.
boardwalk and... Oh, I think we ought to adopt Benny, don't you? It was his suggestion. Well, we're not exactly alone, Helen. Are you going to worry about that girl all night? Well, she might be watching us. She's fast asleep. Besides, she's a good 30 feet away. Come on, my bashful Romeo. Give me a... Hmm? It's only me, Mike. I didn't want to keep you waiting. Benny, don't you ever blow your horn when you come to a crossing? Blow my... Oh, I get it. Well, I figured it didn't mean nothing. See, there ain't no moon hot. Have you got the wireless? Not yet, pal. You said 11 o'clock, and it's almost half past. Okay, but Coney Island's got a lot of depths, and it's spread out all over. you got to be patient, Mike. How much longer? Listen, i got a couple of dozen guys working right now. Stick around for a little while. You ain't got nothing to lose with that tomato. I'll see you later. Where you going? My boss gets worried when he don't know what I'm doing. So long. Now, Mike, where were we? What do you mean, Helen? When we were so rudely interrupted with a report about nothing. Oh, uh, let's go home, huh? But, Mike... Well, it's a long trip, honey, and I've got to be at the station house at 8 o'clock in the morning. But you Wallace. Then he can send it to me. He knows where. What was that? Thunder, baby, and we'll have to run. I hope it pours. Help me All up. All right, come on. I hope it pours for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, let's go. Wait a minute. We can't leave that girl sleeping there on the beach. No? No, I'm going to wake her up. Oh, of course. Oh, don't be unreasonable, Helen. There's going to be a storm. How would you like to get drenched? Why oh, wait for a storm? You can dampen my spirits. Uh-oh. What's the matter? It's raining. Already? I just felt a drop on my nose. Let's get out of here, Mike. Wait a minute, dear. Oh, excuse me, lady. I think you'd better... Uh, miss. Miss. Why don't you just yell in her ear? I don't think it would do any good, Helen. Well, try it and find out. I just felt another drop. You just can't wake up the dead by making a lot of noise. Huh? Mike, she isn't... She is, Helen. From head to foot. The poor kid. And to think we were sitting only 30 feet away on the same beach. Well, she was dead before we got here, Helen. I'll never forgive myself, Mike, the way I talked about her. But if it hadn't been for that storm that never broke... Mike, I feel terrible. Well, here's something to keep you busy. Her handbag? Yeah, look through it. She might have some identification. All right. I should get to a call box, you know. The local police might hear about this. I'm not staying here alone. I don't know what there is about the dead that scares people, Are you sure she was murdered, Mike? Her skull was crushed with the sandbag. I can't believe a little thing like that could kill anybody. Well, this little thing weighs about ten pounds, honey, and it's packed solid. Well, Mike. What's the matter? Look. Your wallet. Well, I'll be... It was in her handbag. Give it to me. Of all things, that girl, a pickpocket. Twenty, twenty-five, thirty. It sort of shatters your faith in people, doesn't it? So young and so pretty. It's all here, Helen. What's all here? My money. Oh, that's good. Well, aren't you glad? I'm too busy wondering about human nature. Postpone it until we get a line on the girl. Come on, keep looking in her handbag. Mike, darling, you may be a detective, but... Then I'll look. That's your job. Oh, dear, a pickpocket. Mike, what kind of people murder pickpockets? All kinds. I mean, pickpockets are the lowest kind of crooks, the bottom of the underworld. They don't work in mobs, do they? Sometimes. Hmm. Maggie Blake. What's that? A name on this identification card. A pickpocket with a... It doesn't make sense, Mike. It never does, honey, until you know what it's all about. Do you? No, but I'm going to find out. That's nice. Where do we start? First, we head to a call box. Get the homicide squad working. As long as we do it together, dear. And after that, we're going to Josie Johnson's Palace of Joy. We're going where? Read it. It's on this business card I found in Maggie Blake's handbag. Oh. Well, as long as they advertise, it should be all right, shouldn't it? Helen, what's wrong with you? You'll never know, Mike, what I thought you were talking about. (laughs) 
It's you. I'm glad to see you again. Where have you been keeping yourself? I went out for a walk, Josie. You're a liar. Hey, now look. I said you're a liar. What are you going to do about it? We're, uh... We're doing pretty good business, Josie. So what? Suckers like the show we give them. I give them. You're only window dressing like a husband should be. But you're not even good window dressing. Uh, Put that bottle back. I haven't had a drink all night, Josie. Put it back and lock that drawer. Oh, just one. There's the key on top of the desk. Use it. Between you and me, I don't care if you drink yourself into pink elephants. But you talk when you're drunk. And that's bad for me. I don't know why I've got to take it from you. Stop any time you want. There's a bed at the bottom of the ocean. Now, give me that key. I started this business. It was my idea to set up the show. That was so long ago, you've died a hundred times since. Where have you been for the last three hours? I told you. Just walking around, huh? Inhaling the fresh Coney Island air. I got tired sitting around the office watching you run things. You said you were going out front for a couple of minutes to look around. So I went for a walk. What's the difference? Came back and you weren't here, so I went out again. How's uh, Maggie Blake? What? Don't look so dumb. You are out with her, weren't you? No. Pete, this is Josie you're talking to, your wife. I've known you for a long time. I haven't seen the girl, I tell you. You, you warned me to lay you off, and I, I... Was she here? Are you kidding? Well, didn't she even bring in the take? Are you calling me a cheat? No, no, wait, wait, Josie, wait a minute. You, you know I don't think you're a doubler, but... Maggie always comes in a few times like the others, and she's pretty regular. She was too busy tonight. Not with me. Shut up, Pete. You're through making a monkey out of me. Josie, you're all wrong. Everybody I... on the island's talking about you and Maggie. I'm telling you for the last time, I don't like it. I don't like people feeling sorry for me. Well, why don't you give her the air? Because she knows too much. Um, Palace of Joy. Josie Johnson talking. Uh, this is Bunny. Got a message for Pete. What is it? Tell him I can't find Maggie Blake. That's all. That's enough, Benny. Nice going, Pete. When did you decide to use Benny as a stooge? What do you mean, Joe? What do you take me for, a two-year-old? You think I start believing because Benny calls up and says you've had him looking for Maggie? Is that what he just told you? You cheap chicken sneak. (laughs) Now get out of here. Go out front and help take tickets. I'm sorry you did that, Josie. Go on, go on. I get sick looking at you. You've been having things your own way too long, baby. Look out you don't drop dead one of these days. You're very funny, Pete. Yeah, yeah. I'm a real comedian, but don't laugh too hard. You're liable to fall out of this world. I was just going to ask you, do you still feel that way about the bag of tricks that uh, the radio actors acquired, or did you gain more respect for them? Well, I gained more respect for them, but even their bag of tricks is quite an accomplishment, you know, in its, in its own right. I don't think that would help them in, in theater or in films, in visual acting. The problem was, I suppose, that there was a limited number of actors who worked regularly. So they had to be flexible. They had to be able to acquire accents. That's right, versatility and quickness. Yeah, and this they had, they were able to work with. This they developed, yeah. 
Well, also, many times they would make these cuts just prior to going on the air. You'd have you'd rehearse a script, and uh, at the last minute, say, cut this, cut this, cut this, and then you go on the air, and you got to remember, you got to do it right, or you, the whole thing will blow up. That's so right. uh, that must be quite a, a skill in itself oh, to yeah. be able to adapt that quickly, because on a stage, once you learn a role, that's it. But on radio, it seemed like it could change up to the last second before you went on the air. That's absolutely true. But you have I had great respect for these actors who developed those techniques. Did you have any uh, particular way of doing it yourself, uh, any of these last-minute changes? Or how did you keep alert so you wouldn't have the problem of uh, saying the line it was cut or run over or anything like that? Well, I, <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer that. You just did it, I guess. That's about the best way to describe it. Huh? I was considered a bit of a nut by many of my peers in radio because I, at one point in my career, was very serious about improving radio acting by learning the lines memorizing lines, even though I didn't have to. I thought, you know, I could relate better to somebody across the microphone if I was free from the script. Mm -hmm. And I found that uh, within the rehearsal period, even though it was short, most parts couldn't be learned. There were only a few paragraphs. And I developed a technique of learning them, and then marking my script places I wasn't sure, you know, so I could always uh, fall back on the script if I had to. Well, you were doing a, actually a, a memorized performance then for the most yeah. part. the worst part of going to Coney Island, the ride home in the subway. Yeah. Oh, well, Benny's confession sort of makes it worthwhile. Imagine that chipmunk having the whole thing planned from the beginning, yeah. picking your pocket and then asking us to meet him on the beach where he'd left Maggie Blake's dead body. What a character. And all for a few measly dollars. 30,000. I even thought he'd get away with it. You'd suspect Josie and Pete Johnson of Maggie's murder and he'd be... Mike, you didn't tell me how he got to Pete to kill him. I guess I'll have to, won't I? Well, he followed them to their apartment after they left the office. Yes. Then he phoned Josie and told her to help him frame Pete. She came back to the palace looking for me. Well, the rest is history. Yes, but Mike, what made you suspect Benny? Two things, sweetheart. Josie had a chance to kill me and didn't. And Benny going for the money in the wall. Uh, can I go to sleep now, dear? One more thing. What happened to Josie? She was picked up. Now, darling... All right, honey. Mike. Hmm? Is this your wallet? Where'd you get it? Out of your hip pocket. For a member of the pickpocket squad, you are about the easiest pickings I've ever known. Good night, dear. After Crime Club went off the air at 10.30, WOR alternated news and late-night music until Eddie Newman went on the air at 2 a.m., Crime Club failed to generate any sponsorship support for the Mutual Broadcasting System and was canceled after its October 16, 1947 episode. Barry Thompson would pass away unexpectedly of a heart attack on August 19, 1960. And so closes tonight's story, Coney Island Nocturne. Stedman Coles wrote the radio script, Roger Bauer produced and directed Walter Kinsella played Mike Donahue. Joan Alexander was Helen O'Malley. Jean Ellen was heard as Josie Johnson. Bill Quinn was Peter Johnson. And Joseph Julian was Benny Gould. Oh, I beg your pardon. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Yes, come over a week from tonight. Good. We have the very exciting story of a sparkle that bloomed into murder. It's called Death Deals a Diamond.
In the meantime... Well, in the meantime, there is a new Crime Club book available this week and every week at bookstores everywhere. Yes, it's available now. Fine. And we'll look for you next week. This program came from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. In your opinion, when did radio begin to decline? As television began to ascend. You have much of a chance to go into television, as many of your peers did at that time. I did the first dramatic show that CBS ever did. <laughs> you were a real pioneer in every sense of the word. Yeah, it was a 12-minute thing. There was only one stationary camera. You couldn't move it to follow the actors, you know. It was like almost like a stage production. Yeah. I think it was the late 40s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I remember there were only about 200 experimental television sets in the city at that time. They were programming these things experimentally, you know. And I remember the director took us over to his house afterwards, and there was a fight on television. It was a championship fight of some kind. I forget who was fighting but the only way you could tell the uh, difference between the two boxers was one had white shorts and the other had dark shorts. The images were so unclear. Yeah, this had to go back probably to the late 30s, I would think. That would seem to me late 40s would... No, it came back, it, it was right after I came back from England, uh-huh. which was in 1942. Mm-hmm. Oh, I said late 40s. Yeah. I, I was yeah. wrong. Yes, you're right about that. Well, at any rate, you did make it successfully over into television. You're uh, very much a part of the television scene today. And what part do you play on Somerset, the uh, daytime NBC soap? I play Vic Kirby, kind of a mysterious, interesting handyman figure who could be up to no good or not. (laughs) 